Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Risk Opportunity, a series brought to you by Bloomberg Media Studios and Zurich Insurance Group. I'm Danny Hewson, a financial analyst and broadcaster. I've been covering finance and business for more than 20 years. We're living in an age of unprecedented change, so much so that permacrisis, defined as an extended period of instability and insecurity, was Collins Dictionary's word of 2022. In the Global Risks Report, the cost of living crisis and climate change topped the risk agenda for 2023. Meanwhile, Bloomberg's latest Global Risk Briefing highlighted interest rate hikes, falling employment rates and currency volatility as risks to watch. Bloomberg Economics also projects that the global economy will grow by just 2.4% this year, Excluding the crisis years of 2009 and 2020, that's the slowest rate since 1993. But is it all bad? Are we all doomed? Or can we use the circumstances to change for the better? What can we learn from the experience? And can we come out the other side a whole lot more resilient? With me today are John Scott, Zurich's Head of Sustainability Risk, and Dr. Sarah Gordon, CEO and co-founder of Satala. For the past 10 years, John has focused on global risks, in particular climate change risk, working with organisations including the Bank of England, the UK government's Green Finance Task Force and the UN. And Sarah Gordon co-founded Satala, a network of award-winning risk management trainers, consultants and researchers. She's worked across a number of industries, including mining, healthcare, energy finance and tech startups. John, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming along. John, I'm going to start with you. You have worked in risk management for a long time. How does today's risk backdrop compare to previous years? And we're already smiling at that, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, things have changed a lot. If you cast your mind back just over 12 months, the world looked a very different place. We were just coming out of a global pandemic with lots of consequences, uh, economic consequences, supply chain consequences, societal consequences, really revealing the disparities in in many societies between the haves and the have-nots. And sadly, it's the poorest people and the most disadvantaged people in all societies that were really impacted very badly by the, the pandemic. But roll on just over a year. And as I said, it feels like we're in a world with almost like a whole bunch of old risks coming to the fore again. We have inflation at a level we haven't seen since the 1970s. We're in an energy crisis. That was an early 70s risk. We've got interest rates we haven't seen before the great financial crisis, before the credit crisis of 2008. So all these things combine together to really create a very different looking world for us as individuals, as businesses, and for governments too. And Sarah, as we look back, I guess, at those old risks and how they impacted our lives in order to help manage those risks. Absolutely. I mean, I think with regards to inflation, that's a risk which, as John says, is nothing new, but perhaps we've forgotten a little bit with regards to how to manage it. So there are an awful lot of people going back to their notes from a number of years ago saying, hang on, when was this last a problem? When did we last have to think about it? So I think there's been an awful lot of merging of perhaps traditional ways in managing these risks together with more modern thinking where perhaps we have new technology where we can utilise that to make decisions a little bit faster or certainly utilise larger data sets. So whilst they might be old risks, 
there's something really exciting here where we can manufacture new ways of managing them. And has risk management changed over the years, John? Yes, I think it has matured dramatically. One one of the challenges for risk is trying to not look backwards all the time, but trying to look forwards and understand how the world may play out. And in fact, that's what the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report 2023 does. It, it tries to think in a scenario way. There may be different scenarios or different ways in which the world can develop. And in those different worlds, how may risks and opportunities vary? And that's extremely helpful because a lot of risk reports are backward looking or they're very short term in their outlook. Then it becomes almost like a forecast. And we know when we try and forecast things, we inevitably get them wrong. <laughs> because that's the key thing that businesses are looking for, isn't it? They're looking for opportunity in the risk. Yeah, they are. And I think with that, is if you could give somebody a prediction or a map of the future that was 100% certain, the world would look very different. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We can just put together our our best estimates with regards to where the world might go. And with regards to all of that, that's a case here where leveraging from the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report, something that's really nice about this year's report is that they talk about both the near term, but then also the long term as well, because different risks are going to come to fruition at different timescales. So, for example, a lot of the climate change related risks require us to think decades into the future for when we're going to see or potentially going to see those impacts. But the key with regards to all of them is always asking ourselves, okay, so we might not see the impact of that risk for many years, but when do we have to take action to try and address it? Because some of those long-term risks need us to act right now. And so it's the positioning of when we need to put those actions, those controls, those mitigations in place. That almost determines the prioritisation of which are the really big risks that we need to be thinking about, rather than just prioritising them by what's about to maybe hit us in the face or be the next opportunity that we can grab. Now, according to Peter Geiger, Zurich Insurance Group's chief risk officer, every risk is an opportunity if it's properly managed. Can you elaborate on how a business can turn risk into opportunity and what managing a risk well looks like? Well, it helps a lot if we think about how we describe a risk. They're typically describing a distribution of different types of event that may be called the same thing. So a car accident could be a bump in the garage, an accident out on the road, or it could be a multiple pileup on the motorway. And all of those have different consequences and different likelihoods. And so when you When you look into how we describe a risk, typically we think about the underlying vulnerabilities. What are the things that affect the risk or make the risk likely to happen? Then we look at perhaps some of the controls, some of the things that are helping to manage that risk. And then we look at the triggers. What what are the events or things that might happen that make the risk manifest? And then we have a whole set of consequences. And typically, the things that help us understand how to manage risk well are the vulnerabilities and the controls and somewhat the the triggers. We can't do a lot about the triggers in many cases because it's about events. You know, events happen uh, and often we can't do a lot about that. But what we can do a lot about is are we well prepared? Can we build in resilience into our business models? You know, can we do things about changing our products and services, for example, that make us not only more resilient, but to increase business benefit, you know, whether that's new revenue or new sources of profit. And with that as well, I mean, I think what's really interesting is what might be considered to be a risk for one person might not be a risk for someone else. It might be a cause for them or a consequence for them. So everything happens as a as a network. 
So if you're trying to become truly resilient or be proactive about managing your risks, so there, we talk about controls being either proactive, so you're trying to steer whether that risk may or may not happen, or reactive. So those reactive controls, they're not going to do anything about the risk actually occurring, but they'll help you to manage the consequences of those risks. So by looking at everything as a network, which might be quite a complicated way of doing it sometimes, but even just at a high level saying, how are all these things interconnected? It allows us to say, okay, where am I going to get best bang for my buck in terms of putting those controls in place nice and early so that when those dominoes do fall over or or that risk scenario might actually happen, I've positioned my organization, my team, my family in the best possible position for that particular situation. And boy, those dominoes have been falling lately. I mean, John, you spoke about triggers, about events, international tension, conflict. We've got all of that at the moment. And they can have a severe effect on businesses. So what can we learn from all those things about managing risk in business? So there's a there's a phrase that's quite popular at the moment, and it's talked about in the Global Risk Report, which is polycrisis. And this is a, a phrase which is really trying to illustrate just what you spoke about there, which was, you know, there seem to be a lot of crises around. We have an energy crisis, we have a food crisis, we have societal crises, we have economic crises. And, and really that gives many people the feeling that, oh my goodness, we're in a world we haven't seen before and, you know, how am I going to manage all these crises? But I think really when you go into the vulnerabilities that underpin the risks, these are the sources of the opportunities to fix them as well uh, and to find new ways of dealing with risk. So when we think about global risks, for example, militarization is is a theme that comes out of the Global Risk Report. Militarization driving new technologies as governments invest in different ways of either defending or attacking each other. And that might be in different domains in the internet space. It might be in space itself. And all the new technologies that come out of that type of advance have dual use, not only military, but civilian as well. So there can be tremendous advantages and business opportunities that drop out from that. And that's where a global risk turns into opportunity for a business. And a lot of these risks are interdependent, they're linked, aren't they? Is that a benefit or a weakness for companies? Oh, it depends which side of the coin I think you're <laughs> looking at. Um, personally, I'm a I'm a glass half full kind of person. So I'd like to see it as being an opportunity because if you can see some of those links between different aspects, perhaps then you can say, well, you know what, we can take this action or put in place that particular investment. And that's not just going to help us with one area, it's going to help us with multiple. So it allows you to really bed down the business case for taking action or changing something within the organisation. I think the other thing as well is that Whilst when we see crisis after crisis after crisis layering on top of us and we might say, oh, this is sod's law, it is in these times of stress when people have to become more innovative, more creative. And so you do see people perhaps taking more risk themselves in terms of how they address that situation. So actually, there's huge opportunity when it looks like everything is going wrong. Actually, there's the opportunity to invent the new way forward. If everything was stable and the same, as human beings, we'd probably be quite lazy. 
and we might not see <laughs> those technological advancements that perhaps we're seeing now. I'm not saying these crises are a good thing. You know, it'd be much nicer if we lived in a world where everything was stable. But as human beings, we do tend to function pretty well when we're required to think outside the box and to do something a little bit different. You're absolutely right, because during COVID, of course, suddenly within 24 hours, people were making phone calls to their tech departments and saying, we need to make this work from home in a way that we never have before. And it's those conversations, it's making sure that your risk management strategy starts from the ground up and from the top down. Is that part and parcel of what businesses really need to be looking at to get this right? Yeah, I think going back to the point about interdependency between risks and especially global risks, I mean, it is a characteristic of global risks that they have emerging risk characteristics. So they develop over time. And we've really, over the last 10 years, but really up until the pandemic, certainly the prior decade to the pandemic, we were living in a kind of slightly strange world in that we had lots of siloed risk events. So in 2014, 2015, we had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. In 2011, we had storms and flooding around the world. In 2010, we had the volcanic eruption that disrupted air travel in Europe. Uh, and all those things were kind of thought of, well, that's a single risk. You know, the risk just happens and that's it, isn't it? And it kind of masked the reality, which is all these risks are interdependent. And so when one thing happens, and the pandemic's a great example, it was a health risk that manifested the pandemic. But of course, it immediately had all sorts of knock-on impacts. It had societal impacts. It had economic impacts when the lockdowns were put in place to reduce transmissions. It had business impacts. Many companies having to put their staff on furlough, often funded by governments, which in turn created greater indebtedness for governments and for companies. So a real mix of additional risks that manifested. And that's that kind of interdependence is fertile ground for companies to uh, think about how to make the best of that risk landscape. And you work with a lot of companies and you very much like to get involved in those conversations. So you bring in every member of the team because every member of the team might come at risk management from a very different angle. Absolutely. So almost the worst thing you can do when you're a risk manager is assume that you've got all the risks listed out in your risk register and you understand what's going on. There will always be something that somebody's assuming that somebody else knows about it or is doing something about it. Or there might be something that is really sensitive. And so people don't quite know how to share it with one another, or they're scared that they might offend one another by mentioning it or discussing it. Or the worst case situation is if you've invented a risk management process that is so bureaucratic and heavy and entrenched and needing lots and lots of paperwork to enter a new risk into that risk profile or that register, that every Everyone goes, oh, I don't want to tell you about that because then I'm going to give myself lots of work. If that's the situation that you're in, and it usually is within most organisations, there being some things that we don't know about, you have to go out and you have to listen to what everybody is saying across the organisation and give them that respect for even if they're talking about something that you already know about or is already being dealt with somewhere else in the organisation, it's their perspective, it's their opinion that gives you that little bit of smoke to that fire. So then you can say, okay, is there something that we actually need to deal with here? 
Some organizations refer to these as being the elephants or the gray rhinos or the ostriches. We tend to defer to lots of animal expressions <laughs> at this point in time. And then we talk about black swans and everything else. We have a whole zoo there. But these are things where if you can engage with people at all levels of the organization, from the shop floor through to board level, and then engage people external to your organization as well, you'll have a much more complete opinion with regards to what is important to them but also what is important to your organization as well. It's one of the biggest risks in risk management that you just make a list and then don't act on that list. <laughs> yes, I mean, people get hung up on taxonomies of risks and so on. But I think, you know, going back to this global risk report, one of the really good things about the foundation of it is that it's built on a risk perception survey with over 1,200 risk experts from around the world from a very diverse range of backgrounds and disciplines, giving their views on what they think these risks are about. And that's extremely helpful because it provides that kind of diversity that Sarah was talking about in terms of understanding different aspects of risks. And I think, you know, going back to the zoo of uh, you know, different uh, type explanations for risks, if you like. A grey rhino risk is a risk that is actually in full sight, like a grey rhino out on the plains in Africa. You can see it there, it looks threatening, but you don't necessarily do anything about it. And that's the other characteristic of global risk. There's a lack of action taken on global risk for all sorts of reasons. And if we take climate change as an example, you know, we're in a a moment, I think, with climate change, where there's a clear scientific imperative to do something. The IPCC climate scientists tell us, you know, we need to keep global warming within uh, a 1.5 degree threshold. Uh, we're emitting greenhouse gases at a rate at the moment, which means we're going to exceed that very lightly before the end of the decade. So the hope of net zero by 2050 already gone. And that's that's massively challenging. And why it's challenging is because Although there's a scientific imperative, there's there's actually a political expediency going on. So there's many other things that I mentioned it earlier, the energy crisis, the food crisis, inflation, which are distracting leaders uh, in business and, and in governments in addressing these longer term risks. But they're all interconnected, aren't they? So with regards to, say, the energy crisis and climate change, our need to go through a just energy transition, so move away from the non-renewables like oil, gas, coal, into the renewables, most of the materials that are needed for wind turbines, photovoltaics, etc., still need to be dug out of the ground, which therefore requires a massive escalation in terms of the volume of material that we provide. That comes from the mining sector, not the oil and gas sector. And so this is something here where you've got the opportunity for a sector that has had many disasters in its own right to actually work out how can we dig this material out the ground in the most responsible way possible so it goes into that supply chain and then also as well work with people who are really good at recycling to say that when we've gone to that effort of producing those materials, we can keep them within our stock. So we keep them going round and round in circles. So that's an area there where coming from both the energy crisis, but then also mixing climate change in with that at the same time, you've got a double reason for saying, okay, how are we going to do this right to actually serve our needs that we've got to be able to deal with right now? I guess that brings us on to regulation, because in many ways, regulation is important. It's another area where risk and opportunity are closely linked. So how can businesses which might see regulation as a burden or as a box-ticking exercise turn those regulatory demands to their advantage? 
So I'm going to be intentionally provocative here and say that all regulation is behind where we need it to be at the present point in time. And that is generally because when when a regulation, whatever kind of document it is or whatever kind of understanding it is, gets put in place, there's fantastic justification for it being there. And there usually has to be some sort of data set to validate that it is the right sort of regulation to have. And that's fantastic for managing the present. But remember, we're trying to build a future that's coming at us really fast at the moment. And so when you look at some of these areas that are changing incredibly quickly, the poor people who are holding the pen on various regulations, it's very difficult for them to be able to keep up. And also they are constrained within certain rules. So they can't just go out on a limb and say, hey, I think this might be the best approach. Actually, there needs to be a little bit of thought that goes in behind the scenes there as well. Yeah, and I think we have to look at it in the broader perspective. It's not just regulation, but it's legislation as well. Put that all together in a sort of policy landscape. It's really challenging for policymakers to create a a set of policies that drive the correct behavior or the behavior that you want to make a change. And climate change is a really, really good example. So the transition away from fossil fuels, which we need to do over the next 30 years, is very difficult because we live in a world where we're all dependent on fossil fuels in virtually every sector whether it's for power generation, whether it's for transportation in heavy industry, in petrochemicals, in agrochemicals and agriculture more broadly. We have to feed more than 8 billion people on the planet. And at the moment, all agriculture is essentially oil-based. And we have to move away from that. But how do we do it? How do we encourage or incentivize that behavior? And of course, we could put in regulatory or or legislative uh, controls in place or taxes, for example, that might uh, create a a higher carbon price that incentivizes people to move away from carbon-intensive goods. But then all of a sudden, that distorts everyone's perception of what's in the economy. And it might change people's jobs. It might shut down industries tomorrow, which creates enormous challenges of unemployment and retraining and early retirement for governments, which are already extremely indebted after the pandemic and now with the situation with high interest rates that have come as inflation has surged after the events in Ukraine. Uh, and the responses to that. So, you know, really, I think legislation and regulation are very, very powerful tools, and we need to handle them carefully, uh, and business needs to work with government in, in a sort of giant team game, really. I think it's finance, it's government, and it's the real economy all working together to make these changes happen. Because change is a funny thing, because it can happen incredibly quickly, or seem to, And yet it has been coming for years and years. And one of the big issues is that businesses, governments tend to plan maybe two, five years down the line where actually they need to be thinking 10, 15 years. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about the energy transition and the provision of raw materials that needs to go into that, the country that is miles ahead of everybody else is China in part because they've had a very stable government for a long period of time that hasn't required changes on quite a regular basis. Now, I'm not necessarily condoning different styles of governance or anything like that, but when you're talking about things that require decades to be put in place, actually having that stability with regards to that government level is very, very helpful. And so then what's going on at the moment, for example, with regards to the UK, Europe, America 
is the the Americans recently put in place the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act. And that's driven huge change immediately with regards to where people are positioning their businesses, the opportunities that they're looking for. There are big discussions with the Europeans in terms of, okay, well, what does this mean in terms of the allocation of budgets to different areas around the world? And of course, here in the UK, we're having all of those types of discussions as well. So what you've got is you've almost got the need for a more nimble approach to some of this change, but also in terms of the legislation and the regulation that is being drafted. People are doing it very quickly at the moment because we're trying to keep up with one another. It is a race. It is a competition. Will global markets sort everything out? No, not in the near term. In the long term, yes, but that's not close enough for us. We need governments to draft the correct sort of regulation and put it in place fast enough so it therefore drives the rest of the change that we need. And businesses also need to be thinking longer term. They need to be thinking strategies which will take them into the next 15 years so that they can grab opportunities, not just the ones that are there now, but the opportunities that are coming down the tracks. Yes, I think that's true, but it depends on what kind of industry you're in. Some industries are very long-term by their very nature. They're capital-intensive long-term bets, if you like. So if you think of the oil and gas industry, how that's developed, or the mining industry, you know, those are classic examples of really long-term thinking types of uh, sectors because their investments pay out over decades. Other industries, fast-moving consumer goods, that's that's how you position goods that get sold every week and and they change every week. That's a very fast-moving world and planning five or ten years is a nonsense in that, that kind of sector. So I think there's a real mix of this long and short term. And I think I think it's really about business and government working together on these things. So if we go back to the pandemic and think about one of the great successes in the pandemic, which was essentially the vaccine development, you know, that was a real collaboration between the pharmaceutical industry and business and governments. And that worked incredibly well. You know, in past decades, it took 20 years to discover and prove out a new vaccine. We did it in a year. So I think, you know, allocating different tasks to private enterprise and to governments, building on their skills and capabilities that are separate, but uh, working together is the way to go. Before I let you both go, because I could talk to you about this stuff for hours, adaptability, resilience, crucial. So how can an institution build a resilient mindset and and encourage this idea of resilience in its people? So I think the first key to that is diversity of thought. The more ideas you've got in the room, add to that creativity and you can create different options. It therefore means that actually you can go with your best bet. Also within there as well, not being afraid to say that you're wrong. So actually saying, well, you know what, I'm going to try this. And if I then realize, actually, this doesn't quite look like the right path, let's stop here or let's change direction, let's pivot. That's incredibly important. If you just stick to your path and assume that everybody else is wrong and you're the right one, we know that that doesn't necessarily lead to the uh, the, the desired outcome at the end of the day. <laughs> John was nodding there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... You know, going back to the global risk report, these global risks, not only are they highly interdependent amongst each other, but also the solutions to them tend to lead people to think about a global approach to managing a global risk. But I think actually when you look at many of these global risks, how they play out is in an intensely local way. So if you think of things like flood, 
Building flood resilience is a very complicated thing to do because it's a very uh, system-wide issue. So it depends on where the flood water is coming from, how uplands are managed or farmed, uh, how rivers are managed in terms of whether they silt up or not, where you do or you don't build flood defences. All of that is often intensely micro-local in terms of how it's managed. And so I think a lot of the solutions to these global risks are actually local. John, Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us. And thank you for listening to The Risk Opportunity. Please do follow, rate and review the podcast. It really helps others find it. The Risk Opportunity was brought to you by Bloomberg Media Studios and Zurich Insurance Group. 